Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, and, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. Hopefully not everyone out there has uh, been up all night to uh, White Night. <laughs> I certainly wasn't, but, uh, yes, hopefully you're all tuned in and ready to go with paper and pencil in hand. But... Uh, First up, of course, we have to say very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Good morning. Good morning, Pam, and good morning to everybody who's out there, or all three of our listeners, if they're, if they're <laughs> awake yet. Um, and isn't it interesting, to, this morning's the first morning I've come down where it's actually been dark when I've left home. So it is actually, the yes. days are now really appreciably starting to shorten. That's right. Um, which is always a time when I start getting quite excited because, you know, summer's on the wane. <laughs> so I start to wake up again. I come out of my summer hibernation because all I seem to do is wander around with a hose in my hand most of the summer. Uh, and it's boring and I'm sick of it. And at least this summer wasn't too hot if a bit on the dry side. Um, but, yes, when the days start to shorten, I feel like the, the end is nigh and I can cope from here on in, I think. And... Uh, Yes, trying to keep the garden looking good is always a, a hassle when you've got a long, dry summer. Well, it is. But what you can start doing is planning for what you're going oh, yes. to plant out in autumn. Do you know what I've been doing? Keeping my grass green. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> I'm actually trying to keep my one little lawn area. You never uh, used to care about I d- your I lawn. I don't normally care, but I have a reason. Uh, and so the other day I went oh, round and I put duck poo all over it and watered it in and put some seed down in the bare patches because, uh, of course, we've got opera in the garden coming exactly. up again. So I figured this year, instead of having this sort of dry brown patch for us to seat everybody on, this year I'd try and have a nice green patch. Okay. So I'm out there practically every day giving the lawn seed a bit of a, a sprinkle and trying to push everything along because uh, that's on the 10th of April. Yes. So if anybody's Not interested, long. I might as well use that as a segue and move into, in fact, just a quick ad. Um, Gertrude Opera. So that's the organisation we're working with. Uh, they're an organisation that helps young opera singers move into a career, so they polish them and give them chances to sing in public and all that sort of stuff, which I think is fantastic. Um, so they're coming up to do an opera in the garden thing. It will be from 2 o'clock uh, on the 10th of April. And if people want a book, they need to do it through Gertrude Opera. Don't do it through me. So go to the website, uh, which is gertrudeopera.com.au, uh, and you will see uh, Opera at Tigurium uh, up on the home page. And just follow the links through, and you can book tickets. We'll be limiting it to 100 people, because uh, that's all we can fit on the lawn. Um, and um, there will be wine, there will be finger food, there will be botanic art on display. Um, and as long as the weather's reasonably kind to us, it should be a fantastic day. It'll be wonderful. Yeah, and yeah. it is. It's fantastic. And these young opera singers, they're not beginners, so they're not going to screech at you. They're actually, you know, professional singers, but they're just starting their careers. Um, and they come from all over the world, I might add. They're not just young Australians. They're, they're okay. Last year we had, a, I think it was a Romanian lass who was there and somebody from America. And so oh. it's really, really an interesting thing to do. And Gertrude Opera, I think, deserves support because they're helping all these young people to go out into a fairly difficult field. Uh, in life. I mean, how many actually manage to be a serious opera singer and actually make a living thereof? Um, it's, um, yeah, it's hard work for everybody. So, um, anyhow, so that's the 10th of April. So if anybody wants to book, and I'll hopefully have a nice green lawn by then. <laughs> and it was a great success last year, I should last add. Last year was fantastic. It was really, really good, and everybody enjoyed themselves. So, uh, and I think Gertrude Opera happy because it's 
for me, the point is to try and promote them as much as anything else because yes. it's not a well-known organisation and so people don't know that they exist. So by running this opera in the garden, Gertrude Opera not only makes a little bit of money out of the day but it also puts them out there to perhaps a part of the public that haven't mm. heard of them before. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. So we're getting all organised for that at the moment. Pricing wine, uh, working out what the menu will be for the finger food, uh, all that sort of stuff. Yep, so, great. And keeping the grass green. Fantastic. Uh, ridiculously, <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> oh, well, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience until you do it next year. Yeah, yeah well, that's right, exactly. I think this could become, it seems to be becoming an annual event. So it does. we did it last year. We're doing yep. it again this year. Uh, they were very happy with the way it went last year, so uh, they certainly wanted us to do it again. So um, this could be an annual event, so I might have to get the grass looking green every autumn. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> okay. I must say a very good morning to Penny Woodward. Morning, Penny. Morning, Pam. Morning, listeners, and Happy New Year. Seeing this is the first time. I'm back since the new year. Is it really? Yeah, because we weren't here in January. So. No, true. Yeah. yeah. Goodness me, I hadn't even realised that. Thought, it's far too late to be saying Happy New oh. Year. I'm sorry, <laughs> Penny. <laughs> it's, it's well I gone. I haven't spoken to this particular group. Of no, well, that's so true. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. And, of course, I guess we should also say that it's not going to be that long until um, Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show is upon us again. No, it feels very close. <laughs> it feels <laughs> extremely close. <laughs> And it's always a great event. Um, and I think it's a really nice way that the you know the Australian one, particularly the Victorian garden garden world, comes together. Mm. I know as you know, horticultural media people, we love Mifkas because we get to see people that we only see once yeah. a year, and it's you know it's really good. It's good organised, good um, event for Melbourne. Yes, 16th of March, which is a Wednesday, is and the opening yeah, day. It runs through till the Sunday. You'll get caught because it's much earlier than. Like yes. Easter's as early as it can ever get, I think. Easter That's right. Really yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Good Friday is my birthday this year. I, I think it might even be the same weekend as the as the Grand Prix. It I'm is. Sure. It so is. It's going to be a really huge weekend. Absolutely. For everybody. Yep. So you need to keep that in mind if you're trying to make your way up to the to Mifkas because um, there'll be a lot of other people wanting to do other things than gardening too. I noticed too they brought back the uh, one of the twilight. Shows, yeah, which is it, great. It is interesting. It's it's a bit different to um, previous times because there are actually a lot of the gardens are going to be closed off. There's only going to be part of it open because I know I'm going to be on the organic gardener stand, um, but I know we're not needed to be there on the Friday night because okay. a lot of the those areas will be will be fenced off. So when you go, you'll have access to I think the display gardens and right. certainly inside the exhibition building. Um, and uh, there'll certainly be a huge amount to see, but maybe not all the retail stands. So they're doing it slightly differently, yeah. and I think it's a good thing. I think it's good to try different things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, I I'm, I'm, must say I'm definitely looking forward to it. And we've also got to say a very good morning to Tim Samson. Now, Tim, you're CEO of the Horticultural Division there at Diggers Club. Yep. And... Uh, Busy year for you? How's Look, it been coming through summer with the gardens? It's interesting just to hear both Stephen and Penny talking about how early the season is. Oh, well, I feel like we're talking about Miscus already. It's only just... In, we're, in, we're, in, we're in February. Yeah. You know, I, this, yeah, I was out planting yesterday. I felt like it feels like it's April already. You know, mm. the, the, the weather's closing in. There's dew on the, on the ground. We haven't had any significant heat. 
It's actually been a really benign end of the summer, which I've we've really been very enjoyed. lucky. Yeah. yeah, apart from the lack of rainfall, we've been very mm. lucky. I think. Yes, it all happened in Geelong. I think. <laughs> yeah, Geelong had a big. <laughs> yeah, big they had a huge yeah. dump because they, they had did, floods through the city and everything. It was yep, just yep. enormous, my, my and we gar- didn't get anything that day. Yeah. My garden has never been so dry. I, yeah. I you know, I've been living on the peninsula now for a long time, and I've never my garden's mm. never been yeah. as dry as well, there you go. This year. Well, just so as well, it's not dry and hot at the same time. Well, well, yeah, but you see, it was. It was hot in the lead up to Christmas. It's been post Christmas. These. It's been unusually cool, and I agree with you. I found in the last two weeks that autumn is definitely yeah, here. We've yeah. got coloured leaves. We've, oh, yeah. yes. we've yeah. already got. We're getting the dew. I'm starting yeah. to see the the um, powdery mildew on the zucchini. <laughs> already, <laughs> oh, a, a couple of, of autumn. A couple of leaves. Well, because we're near the water, it's yes, always, of course. Yeah, it's always more moist anyway. Of course, um, and you'll probably. Find yeah, yourself, and but my place at home, we've we're on uh, tank water. because yeah. uh, we're in Red Hill and. We've had to buy water three times this summer, mm. so we've never had to do Goodness that before. I've had to actually uh, consolidate which parts of the garden yep. are getting wet yep. and water yep. and which parts are just yep. going completely well, I have to say, I've no luxury yep. of a green lawn at my place. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, I still, still see it as a luxury, but I'm determined to do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have to say my tank is empty, yeah. unfortunately. Mm. It didn't take long to empty it out, but... Yeah, um, that's the way things go, yes. I mean, if you're seriously going to do it with tank water, I think you need about five of them. Actually, I'd rather I thought mine was a big one. If you have enough tanks to water your garden, you don't have any room left for a garden. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Put the garden on top of the tank. Oh, that's oh, a good idea. Oh, right. Yes. Put your yeah. tanks underground. Yeah, well, you could do that, but that, that seems like an awful lot of expense. Yeah. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, it does come down to that for most of us. Mm. I mean, I would love to have huge underground tanks. Mm. It would be fabulous, but, you know, the expense of doing it... Uh, um, I could pay my my Western water bills for quite a long time mm. for the expense of putting the tanks in. You That's know, right. Which you've got to sort of balance yeah. these things a bit. I mean, it's a great thought for if you if you're building a new house, oh, yeah. but if you're on an existing house with an existing garden, it's, oh, it's yeah, you'd have to trash the whole garden just to put the tanks in. Yeah, uh, and think of all those mature trees that you potentially could lose, and mm. you know, yeah. Actually, it does make me laugh. You you've just made me think of something. A neighbour of mine down the street who hopefully isn't listening uh, put um, uh, some panels on his roof right. and then promptly cut down a huge big gum tree to let more light into his panels. Right. And I think, isn't that somewhat counterproductive? You know, and you're cutting down a bit hot. Yeah. Because the sun's beating yeah, on it. Yeah, the sun's beating on the house, and yes, he's making more electricity, but he took down a beautiful big old gum tree. That's, so, that's so he can run his air conditioner more efficiently. Yeah, yeah. I just, I went past and I, and, and, you know, he had to get the guys in to take it down, so it would have cost him probably $1,500, $2,000 to have this tree taken Yeah, it would have. Um, and so he's spent all that, he spent all that on solar panels, and yes, he's now got a much cheaper electricity bill, but that $1,500 would have covered his electricity bill for quite some time. Yes. And he's taken down a big tree that could have been a koala habitat. So yeah. you do have to think these things through, I think. You so know. all the carbon that he saved by generating his own electricity. Yeah. He's lost. He's lost he's by chopping the tree chopping down. The tree down. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's sort of like somebody I once interviewed when I was on Gardening Australia who had an, uh, a powerful owl box above a possum box. <laughs> we, Providing a food yeah, 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 it was sort of like a breakfast bath, the powerful owl. Um, and I'm not quite sure whether this person thought that through at the time. You know, so yeah, there's a possum box, and just above it, there's a powerful owl box. So if both, in fact, were inhabiting the, the habitats created for them, uh, it could have been a bit macabre. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, yeah, thinking things through can be quite a good idea sometimes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, on that note, I'm going to get to a few community announcements. Dearie me.
Um, first up, a reminder to listeners that um, the first uh, garden for uh, Open Gardens Victoria is open today, um, 10 o'clock through till 4.30. Now, this is the Melbourne Club, right in the heart of the city, 36 Collins Street, but you actually enter via Ridgeway Place off Little Collins Street. Uh, $8 entry for that one, as I said, 10 a.m., through till 4.30 and uh, enter via Ridgeway Place off Little Collins Street. Now, uh, also uh, on today, no, next week, sorry, I beg your pardon, next, next weekend, Saturday 27th of Feb and Sunday the 28th of Feb, uh, Melbourne Begonia Society show uh, entitled Colour Your World with Begonias is being held at the Moorabbin Senior Citizens Hall this is at 964 Nepean Highway in Moorabbin. Melway's reference there is 77D6. Free entry to this show. Now, on the Saturday, it's 10 till 4. On the Sunday, 10 till 3. And also, in conjunction with that, the National Dahlia Society of Victoria have got their show on at Mount Waverley Community Centre, also 27th and 28th. Uh, now, this one is a $3 entry. On the Saturday, 12.30 till 5. On the Sunday, uh, 10 till 3.30. And Devonshire Teas will be available at both those shows. Uh, now, also a reminder that coming up uh, March the 5th, but running right through until March the 14th, uh, down at uh, Cranbourne uh, Botanic Gardens, uh, they've got their fifth anniversary exhibition of fabrics, crafts and quilting. Now, uh, entry to the exhibition is free. It's being held in the Australian Garden Visitors Centre, as I said, from the 5th of March, which is a Saturday, through the Labor Day holiday uh, till Monday, March 14th, 10 till 4 each day. Uh, there's over 200 exhibits of patchwork, quilts and other items. And uh, there's also going to be uh, another wonderful quilt um, that's going to be... Uh, Raffled off. Uh, now this quilt has been made by um, by Lisa Chandler, who uh, does some wonderful uh, fabric designs using Australian flora. And uh, so that quilt, as I say, will be uh, raffled off during the uh, the show. So um, lots to see. If you're really interested at all in in uh, craft, uh, particularly in fabrics um, and quilting, that would be a great show to go to. And of course, while you're there. Pop in and have a look at the Australian Garden and see uh, how it's fared over the summer months uh, coming into autumn. Also, uh, coming up uh, 5th of March, uh, Pepper Tree Place, which is on the corner of Bell Street and Sydney Road in Coburg there. They're having their next uh, swap meet, but also they have uh, workshops running on the, the days of their swap meet. March the 5th will be... Uh, a workshop on stone fruit summer pruning. This is with Diana Cotter. And there'll be lots uh, of other happenings there. There's usually live music. They usually have their pizza oven running. They usually have their, um, their uh, nursery there with lots and lots of plants, mainly edibles, for you to take away and pop into your own garden. So, again, that's 5th of March. Um, Stephen, you've got a couple there that are happening early yes. March too. Uh, well, actually, in fact, we've got one that's in late February. So that's the Sustainable Living Festival, which is 
run in the Macedon Ranges and has been for a couple of years now. And most of the events are around Wood End. Uh, it will be on the 27th and 28th of February. Uh, they will have um, bus tours running around a lot of the venues there. Um, there will be a community picnic. Uh, there will be all sorts of things talking about every sort of sustainability you can imagine. So everything from solar to wind to uh, vegetable gardening to, you know, organic growing, all the sorts of things you can think of. There'll be food uh, available. Um, There'll be lots of design and technology things going on. Uh, If you're interested in getting involved, uh, it's $10 per adult, $5 a child, or $25 a family, all inclusive. And if you want to find out more, you can go to the website, and I hope you've got your pen because this is a slightly complicated website. It's all in lowercase, and it's slf.msgon.com. L-I-N-E dot org dot A-U. So that's S-L-F dot M-R-S-G-O-N-L-I-N-E dot org dot A-U. Um, and, yeah, come up to an end and, and enjoy the day. It will be a, a really, or the couple of days, it might take you both days to get around to seeing everything. So so that's on, on the 27th and 28th of February. And... Um, there's an autumn show coming up at Kyneton as well, or Kyneton as we locals call it, <laughs> um, and that's for the Horticultural Society up there. It's their autumn flower show. It's in the Watts Pavilion at the showgrounds in Mollison Street, Kyneton, and it will be on Saturday and Sunday, the 5th and 6th of March. Admission is $4, um, and uh, there'll be a plant stall, afternoon teas, all of the regular things you expect from a country flower show um, and they always do a good job up there at Kyneton their daffodil shows in the spring are amazing um, so this is their autumn show so you can go along and see who's grown the best zucchini or gladioli or whatever um, and I love those sort of country shows they're really great fun you, you go along and you see the pride that people have in the things they grow. Oh, they're highly competitive. Oh, they can be, yes. Well, <laughs> who doesn't want to get a sash saying your best fruit and show? Yes. You know, I mean, really. You know. <laughs> to go with the collection. Yeah, to yes. go with the collection, yes. Uh, I have to say, I've won a couple of those at the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society, and it's still a giggle. I mean, I love it. You know, you, you go along to the show, you, you put your entries in, um, the show manager faffs and fluffs around you, making sure you're putting it in the right place and <laughs> all that sort of stuff, uh, and that it's and it's to the schedule. You know, you can't have seven berries if it says six. You know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so it's 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 great fun and it's it's a great community thing to do. So that's the Kyneton Horticultural Society Autumn Flower Show uh, at the showgrounds on the fifth and sixth of March, and it's from one p.m. to five on the Saturday because of course they've got to get the judging out of the way, and then on the Sunday it's from ten till four thirty. So there you go. There's a couple of Macedon Rangers ones. Excellent. Okay. Um, let me just see. There, there is one other that I should mention um, because this is an advance notice. Uh, again, this is being run by Open Gardens Victoria, but this is a Mornington Peninsula Gardens coach tour. Now, it's taking place on Friday the 18th of March, but you need to uh, book ahead, obviously, for this one. And uh, uh, they're visiting four gardens in all. Uh, first is a private tour of uh, Dame Elizabeth Murdoch's Cruden Farm. Next, uh, they go to the Vineyard Garden at Mooraduct. Um, then there's going to be a picnic lunch, uh, which will be provided at Villa Leticia. And I think you and I know mm-hmm. who owns that garden. Yes. And uh, then finally, they go on to Rick Eckersley's uh, inspiring 10-acre sustainable musk 
cottage garden near Flinders. So uh, all up, there's the four gardens. Now, the tour includes return transport from Melbourne CBD to the Mornington Peninsula, and morning tea as well as lunch is provided. Now, the cost is $195 all up to cover the full day. Uh, Now, to book, you need to go online to uh, the website for Open Gardens Victoria, which is www.opengardensvictoria.org. .au and uh, then you can download the form and either post it to PO Box 655 Hawthorne or email the information requested to info at opengardensvictoria.org.au. But if you just go to their website, opengardensvictoria.org.au, you'll find uh, where to click on for the uh, the coach tour and uh, the rest of it will all be there ready for you to uh Fill in or do whatever you want to to book for that one. Okay, well, it's high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. We've got Stephen Ryan, Penny Woodward and Tim, Tim Sansom from the Diggers Club in this morning. So do give us a call. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Penny, the uh, latest edition of Organic Gardener has hit the shelves. Um, this is the March-April edition and uh, lots of wonderful um, articles. Again, you've written a couple too and one in particular that I think is really important for listeners to know a little bit about. Um, it's an article all about uh, pyrethrum. Yeah, look, uh, I think it's a, it's a really good edition of the magazine this time around. I think there's some, it's a good range of articles. Uh, the one on pyrethrum I, I wrote um, and I've been sort of pushing to get this into the magazine for a little while uh, because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about pyrethrum. There is. So I want to start first of all by saying that pyrethrum is regarded as one of the safest sprays in comparison to some of the other broad spectrum sprays but it's still a broad spectrum spray and it should still only be used as a last resort. Um, but pyrethrum sprays then divide up into several different sorts of spray or product. So um, pyrethrum is actually derived from a daisy, which is, um, which is Tanacetum cinerarifolium, and it's the flowers of that daisy that are used, that are processed to produce the chemical pyrethrin, um, which is used in what we HMA, H, you know, gardening people, horticultural gardening people, talk about as a natural pyrethrum spray. And that's to distinguish it from the chemically produced pyrethrum sprays, which are actually based on pyrethroids. Um, and they're, they're, although they are chemically similar, they're actually very different. Mm. Um, I, I just want to go one step back to the pyrethrum daisy again. Uh, 70% of pyrethrum daisies, although they're native to northern Europe, are actually grown in Tasmania and near Ballarat the, of the world supply. Oh, really? So it's wow. a, it's a, a huge, It's a huge crop mm. um, for Australia and particularly for Tasmania. So I think it's really good that, um, that a lot of our pyrethrum is now sourced actually here and it's also an important export. Um, so pyrethrins are... These are the ones that come directly from the daisy. And, and in, in Organic Gardener, we've been talking for years about sourcing natural pyrethrin if you're, going to, if you're going to use it as a spray. The reason they're safer is because they, they 
as far they've been in use for nearly 40 years and research has shown that they really have minimal effect on mammals so it's only insects that are affected because it in, interferes with a particular neural pathway in insects but it doesn't have the same effect on mammals um, so they and they don't last very long um, but we have never actually had an organically certified pyrethrum spray um, in Australia uh, and that's because they add something called piperonal butoxide mm. to all pyrethrum sprays, even though they're made, they're sourced naturally, but piperonal butoxide is not an organic input. So these sprays, although they're called natural, can't be organically certified. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But the piperonal butoxide, um, I- I- the reason it's not organic is because it affects fish and other aquatic organisms. So it can cause all sorts of problems for them. To go back to the pyrethroids, which are the chemically manufactured um, product, they're used, the pyrethroids are used, because pyrethrum is seen as being safe, pyrethroids are used in a huge number of different sprays but they're also used in hair products for knits they're used in dog products for fleas <coughs> and a whole range of, of different things like that and I'm just going to read you just a passage from my article because there's been some recent research that has shown that um, delta methrin which is one of the pyrethroids and that there's about half a dozen of them and they're chemically all very similar so they'll all have similar reactions may alter the development of the brain's dopamine system and increase the risk of ADHD in children. Now, the research that came up with this, there's a lot more complex um, material in there, but I just think we need to understand that something that is seen as safe may not be as safe as we have thought it is, and, mm. and I think this research is really important. I've, I've summarised it in the article in Organic Gardener, but I've also written about it on the Organic Gardener face um, uh, web page so that if you want to know more about it you can just get on to the Organic Gardener web page so, so and Google it, it. If I'm, a, if I'm a, a garden consumer and I'm walking through the, the aisles of the, the mm. sprays at the, the box store or wherever can I tell from reading on the, on the, the label what's a pyrethrin and what's a pyrethroid? Yeah, it should say on the label whether it's got a pyrethroid in it mm-hmm. or a pyrethrin. That, so that is fine print? Got, got to, to be in print. the fine print. Yeah. Always read the fine print. Mm. Um, really important. Um, so I, I just I would not use pyrethroids at mm. all, uh, ever. Um, I wouldn't do that because I'm an organic gardener anyway. Um, and with the pyrethrins, we've sort of compromised and said that, you know, this is, this is um, better than a lot of other sprays, but because of the piperonal butoxide, we really shouldn't use those either. But the good news is that we now have an organic option. Um, and Yates has come out with a spray that instead of having piperonal butoxide in it, they've actually done the research in Australia and they're, they're using an oil that helps with the synergism of the, of the spray. So that's what the piperonal butoxide is used to make it more stable, to make it last a bit longer so it's a bit more effective. They're now, they've actually just added canola oil in a particular way that makes the, the spray more stable. Um, the difficult thing and I keep forgetting what they've called it, but they've called it Nature's Way Citrus and Ornamental Spray. Oh, um, goodness. Instead of calling it pyrethrum. <laughs> so it can be a bit hard to, to identify, but part of that is to do with the APVMA, which is the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicines Association, um, and they 
when you're coming up with a new spray, you have to identify every single thing that it will affect. And that's to show efficacy, not because it's dangerous or anything, but you've got to show that it works on every single sap-sucking insect, every single caterpillar, you know, some of them you can do in groups. But so, so far, um, Yates has got the APVMA to permission to say that it, wor- that it works on a range of different things and it can be used on vegetables and on citrus. So they haven't yet got the permissions to be able to say that it can be used on fruit trees, on other fruit trees, for instance. Mm. But that will come. But every time they have to do that, they have to pay registration for that. Mm, yeah. It's a really yes. costly exercise. One assumes they might end up having to change the name every time, too. Well, <laughs> yeah, look, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, they'll it's end up a, calling it pyrethrum. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, probably, yes. <laughs> but if you want to find a pyrethrum spray, that's the one you need. Yes. An or- certified organic pyrethrum spray, that's the one that you need to find. Look, a similar story exists around Echo Organics Neem spray, mm, yes. which all over the world it is allowed to be sprayed on edible crops. It's actually used in toothpaste and hair shampoo and those sort of things. In Australia, the APVMA has so far only licensed it for ornamental plants. Mm. So they have to say on the package that you can only use it on ornamental plants. So... People can choose how they use it, but um, it's it, that's part of the certifying process, and it's long and it's expensive. And eventually, I think they will get permission. One of the things they've been fighting for is to be able to base the, some of the research on overseas research, so that they're not having to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. All the yes, time. yes. Um, so you know, I think some of our local organic companies really need a bit of support because it's hugely expensive to get these organic products and actually make them in Australia. If they import them from overseas, they can um, go straight into into mm. use, but um, if you're making them in Australia, they've got to go through the APVMA. So when they do go to the trouble of getting organic certification, I, you know, it's, I think it's important that we support them. Mm, so absolutely. that was one of the other reasons I wrote the article. But I just found the whole story really interesting of pyrethrum and pyrethrins yeah. and pyrethroids. And, um, so, yeah. Can you, if you grow the plant yourself, how easy or difficult is it to, to manufacture your own spray? Look, it's incredibly fiddly. Um, it, it's, I've done it and I've used, I've used um, pyrethrum dust, um, particularly in baits for things like e-weeks and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but really, now that we have a, a decent um, spray, I, I use them so seldom that I wouldn't bother making them okay. myself. Um, you actually have to dry the flower, don't you? You do. And then you need to dry the flower, and it's the the way it's dried affects the concentration. And part of the problem is, if you do it yourself, you have no idea what the concentration is, mm. so you don't know whether it's going to be too strong or not strong enough. Um, and it's a fairly, yeah, it's a it's a tricky process. And what about actually growing the plant in your garden? Does it have any uh, no. beneficial? As a living plant, because no. we often hear this. It'll sort probably of, you know, be eaten by most yeah. of the bugs yeah. that you're trying to spray. No, well, that's why I want to draw that out because there's yeah. often a, often a, a connotation that oh, I've got planted pyrethrum all around my vegetable garden. How can yeah. I still yeah. No, look, sometimes that works with some plants mm. that uh, that have you know strong scents and give off natural oils and all that sort of thing. Those mm. are important, but pyrethrum actually has no chemical. Um, um, Effect until it's dried. So the chemicals actually form during like the Like coffee doesn't really have any effect until it's dried. It's drunk, in fact. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same with a lot of spices. Spices mm. only yes. do the chemical changes that give us the oils that um, give the fabulous flavours. 
once um, they've they've dried. So yes. and curing garlic is the same too. But yeah, so that makes sense. It's not much that particular plant might look pretty, but it's not going to do anything. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the other proviso we should add, Penny, is that it does affect all insects and therefore it does affect peas. Oh, absolutely. Sorry, I should have mentioned that one of the ways that you should use it is to use it early in the morning and late at night rather than in the middle of the day. So, mm. Yeah, because yeah. it's and a broad spectrum of yeah. yeah. most right. insects, just, doesn't yeah. it? So the yeah. goodies and the baddies yeah. cop it. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, all the details there are in the article if you'd like to read it. I must say, yes, there's a lot of really interesting articles. Um, I noticed Karen Sutherland has now joined the team now. She she's, has. She's a regular she writer, has. which she's, is great. She's writing some lovely articles just on, on flowers and how to use flowers in the garden um, in a landscape sense so that she's talking about you know, how to put them in pots in corners and, you know, things like that that you might not always might not always think of, yeah, which is good. And it's a... There are also some articles about foraging. So um, we've, we've got um, Annie Razor Rowland talking about harvesting weeds and actually utilising them from your garden, which I, is my way of doing it because I have so many weeds in my garden. <laughs> well, and you um, might as well eat your way through them. Yes, yes. <laughs> One way of controlling yeah. them. <laughs> and Jessie Miller's writing about um, gleaning, so, um, which I'm sure we've talked about on, on 3CR, but you know, making use of all the fruit trees in people's backyards that don't get harvested because mm. people don't have time to harvest them, but doing it ethically rather than climbing like over jumping the over the fence. <laughs> That's how we always did it as kids. <laughs> it was over the fence, I yeah, promise. But we're not kids anymore. So oh, damn. Uh, I um, can see myself as a big one. Yes, and Rowan Anderson is, um, is talking about mushrooms. I saw and that. Foraging in mushrooms, yeah. which is always a bit of a dicey topic to write about. But yeah, it's it so is. easy to poison it's, oneself it's, if you're yeah, not careful. Yeah, it's, it's very clear that you don't eat mushrooms unless you're 100% or 101% sure of what you're harvesting because the you know making a mistake could end up with you dead so you don't do that um justin russell's got a really interesting article about regulation overload for small farms now this is this is interesting because i've noticed coming into the magazine um there's always there's always now at least one article that's that's based more on actual agriculture and small small scale farming and that is really interesting because Mm. although we think oh i'm not a small scale farmer um the information that's in it really does apply to home gardeners as well, a lot of yeah. the time. And lots of people, particularly in the country, go from being small farmers to being from small from gardeners to being small scale farmers, and it's a it's a really interesting step. And I think it's something that we're seeing, particularly in the younger generations, mm. who are looking for something a, a little bit different, and they're getting out and they're trying farming in all sorts of different ways. So I think the magazine's just recognising that that that's happening. And it's a really to. interesting transition, actually. We've our, our trial gardens at Diggers, where we grow our vegetables each well, throughout the, throughout the year. Originally, we set them up as a gardener's model. It was kind of like what we were used to. It was small patches, raised beds. Yep. Uh, and what we found that that is very, very labour intensive and oh, costly yeah. and time consuming. So over the last couple of years, we've actually moving across to a, a, a sort of an intermediate scale where we're okay. now using machinery. We've opened up the beds. We've taken the the raised beds off. We're now running tractors through them running proper irrigation systems through them. And it's, it's, a, it's a sort of transition that someone who's going from a garden context to a small producer context is going to have to be really mindful of. That's right. Because they're quite different systems of production. Yeah, mm. yeah, excellent. 
Well, Penny, uh, as I say, Organic Gardener magazine, it's out now in the shops. It is. Um, and you're also having a stand there at Mifka's. We will be there, so if you want to come along and ask questions. Yeah, or you can also take out a subscription. Yeah, and the, the thing that um, I know there's a lot of people who are conscious about paper these days, and uh, although I love the magazines and go back to them all the time, um, but you can get a digital copy as well and read it on your phone or your or your iPad. Excellent. So that's through Apple and Zinio and Google something or other. <laughs> <laughs> I love the technical terminology there. Fantastic. Okay, I must remind listeners, if you'd like to join us this morning, do give us a call. The number is 94190155. I'll say that again. 94190155. We have Stephen Ryan, Penny Woodward and Tim Sansom in the studio this morning. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, incidentally, I might quickly add before I go to, um, to what Tim's brought in, which is an amazing array, um, has any of you ever heard about getting a reaction from Flomus? I was actually, I was actually um, cutting off all my dead yeah. seed heads yesterday mm-hmm. and up I came in a rash from it. It doesn't surprise me. I haven't heard of anybody else get a reaction from it, but a lot of those plants that have that sort of grittiness yeah. to the leaves, I mean... Furry. Yeah, yeah. And, and it does come off very easily. Mm. The, the same thing can uh, be said for things like rice paper plant, for instance, say mm. tetrapanax. If I'm cutting tetrapanax, I've got to be really careful because I'll get a throat full of it and I'll just sort of cough and hack for hours. Mm. Um, so anything with that sort of fluffy stuff that comes off easily mm. could easily give you a reaction. So, uh, And, of course, flomuses too, their dead flower heads are, are quite spiky too, so they can actually oh, they prick the skin a bit, yep. uh, which would help get the nasties into you. So, yeah, I would be careful dealing with it. Yeah, well, I didn't think of wearing long sleeves because mm. I'd never, you know, I couldn't remember last year getting a reaction, mm. but I certainly did this year. So, yeah. And it's not so much like with the euphorbias where it's sap and it's really obvious. Oh, yes. With these things, it's just an itch that's yeah. sort of mm. from the yeah. sticky leaves. Yeah, that's right. And there was a certain amount of dust flying in the air too. Yeah, got to be careful you don't breathe that in. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's, again, the tetrapanaxy thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Once it gets down into your throat, it sort of sticks there and you'll mm. cough and hack yeah. and carry on for ages. So is any of those sort of dusty sort of plants you've got to be a little mm. careful with. Yeah, so just a little warning out mm. there to listeners in case, uh, you know, if, if, if you've got flomus growing in your garden, just... I recommend wearing some long sleeves when you're dealing with and it. I, and I think often it's more than flomus, though, too. I think that some people with sensitive skin can get rashes from all yeah, sorts of unexpected yeah. different plants. People, different plants. Yeah. I get really interesting prickly rashes from uh, a lot sticky of... Sticky weed. No, well, sticky weed's one, but uh, no, I was thinking more of uh, some of the slightly spiky conifers. If I'm mm. working with them in the nursery, it's better if I wear long sleeves because afterwards I'll come out and I'll have all these little mm. red dots all over my skin mm. and, and it itches for ages, particularly junipers and, and spruces and things mm. uh, so yeah you need to be a bit cautious in our in our seed packing room at diggers it's quite interesting that different people have different responses to different species so we've kind of got a list of you know who so and so is not allowed yeah, to don't pack, pack don't pack the parsley seeds <laughs> because they start to cough and it, it, so it's different people have different mm. responses to different plants as well yep yep mm. Now I must uh, I must also uh, tell listeners that uh, of course this is our 40th birthday this year <gasps> Really? 3CR, yes. Wow. I feel like I've been here for 60. How does that happen? <laughs> we have survived 40 years. <laughs> and uh, this week we've uh, is our annual subscriber drive, and this is where um, 
Where our listeners, we urge our listeners to take out a subscription uh, because this is a wonderful way of not only showing your support for the community radio station, but it also gives you a chance to have a say in the decision-making at the station and it also, of course, helps us pay the bills, yes. which are always numerous. And remember that none of us get paid. It's not, not about a cent. us. <laughs> not a cent. Um, so subscription prices, are, if you're fully waged, $70 for the year. Uh, concession is $35. Uh, now, you can go online and subscribe. You can uh, pay by phone by ringing the station during business hours, which is 94198377. You can uh, pay in person by coming into the station. We're at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy. And you can pay by cash, credit or cheque. Or you can post a cheque or money order made out to 3CR and post that to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. But especially for our gardening show listeners this morning, we've decided that anybody who phones in this morning while we're on air who uh, subscribes or renews their subscription today uh, are going to go into the draw for a copy of Creative Vegetable Gardening by Joy Larkham. Now, this is a very comprehensive book. I've been yeah. passing it around the studio. Um, Joy, uh, of course, she's, she's British, but she's been out to Australia. She came out as guest of Diggers, um, I'm now told, quite a few <laughs> years ago, <laughs> even though I remember her coming out. And she did run some workshops for Diggers there. Did, yeah. But... Um, the book, it's full of colour photographs. It gives you some wonderful ideas, for instance, about um, different designs for pottages. Uh, so she goes into a lot of information about pottages, um, but uh, also things like a home edible landscape. Um, she, she has actual plans of formal pottages, informal ones, small urban ones, low-maintenance ones, and even a winter pottager. Um, but she talks about things like how to do willow weaving uh, for yeah. fencing. For a few DPI for members out there might not actually approve of that, <laughs> but yeah, uh, <laughs> not listening. <laughs> uh, I think willow weaving is an amazing thing. Having seen lots of it done in, in Europe, it's just fabulous. Yes. So she also deals with things like um, dramatic effects, uh, architectural and dramatic plants, um, cover with all your edible uh, flowers. She uh, goes into fruit as a decorative feature, using fruits creatively, and on it goes. So um, Joy was heavily influential in the potager at Heronswood, the, the, which is our... Oh, was she? Yeah, the parterre. Yes. Obviously, there's influences from France and Valandry yes, and these sorts yes. of gardens. But when she came, which was... A long time ago. <laughs> some short years ago, it was when that was a very much a, a part of the feature of the garden. It still is, but that was when it was kind of new and in its, in its, in its inception. So coloured vegetable plants, you know, this whole using the, the five colour silver beets or the red cabbages or the kales and these, all those sorts of colours and textures that we now celebrate yes. are largely due to the influence of joy when she came. Yeah, right. Well, there you go. Well, it's, it's a, anyone who's at all interested in, in vegetable gardening, I think you'd really enjoy the book. So as I say, any one of our listeners this morning who phones in uh, to subscribe to 3CR for the next year or renew their subscription if they're already a subscriber will go into the draw and we will draw the winner of that at the end of the program this morning. So uh, that number to ring if you'd like to uh, 
be a part of that, 94190155, and have a chat to Rosemary there on the line. Okay, as I mentioned, it's time we, uh, definitely time we spoke to some of our listeners, and we're going to go next to uh, Robert. Good morning, Robert. Hi, hello, how are you all? How's, how's Phillip Island this morning? Uh, very nice, yeah. Had a little bit of rain about a couple of weeks ago. But still quite green, areas are quite green, but uh, looking good. You can feel a little bit of autumn coming on just early in the morning, you know, got that little bit of chill. Right. So very good, yes, thanks. Yeah. Excellent. Been, been pretty dry some of the hot days. Yep. Look, could I just quickly, uh, can I tell you, tomato, my tomatoes, I, I planned, uh, grew some seed KY1, the little bush tomato. They've been excellent. But all the other tomatoes this year, the fancy name ones, have done no good at all. Very poor. I don't know whether whether it's my soil. That's interesting, Robert. I think I, I would have said that our tomato crop at Diggers this year has probably been the best yeah. we've had for the last half a dozen years. Well, mate, I, I, it's interesting. I had them along a fence line, picket fence, and um, I went to a friend of mine, Mario, here in Cows. He's a great vegetable grower and fruit grower. And when I went there, he had, has, a, say, a great big igloo, great massive thing. But the, it's all covered over with two, you know, the white mesh they put over trees to stop birds and such. Yeah. All covered over with double that. And all his tomatoes, zucchini and cucumbers were doing excellent. So yeah. I came home. Then I covered over some of my vegetables with that white mesh and all of a sudden they picked up. Yeah, it's probably more a shade cloth than the bird net, I should imagine. It's, and, and if you've got um, an area that's protected or under protection for your vegetables under shade cloth, what it's really good for is those really hot, Scorching days, uh, yeah, yeah. which we had early in the summer mm, this yeah. year. We didn't. You yes, know, we did. We, we haven't uh, had them so much. Normally, we're getting them now. Yeah, that could um, be. But you know, we had them in the sort of well December yeah. uh, when it was hot and dry, and that actually is a time of the year when our vegetables were just getting going, and our, our tomato crops uh, were just getting be, going. So, yeah, so yeah. they they actually thrived on that. They were it was a late start, yeah, cold winter, really. straight into a pretty hot and dry early summer. Yes. And that was actually pretty good conditions for our tomatoes. But it can be dependent on other, other aspects of, you know, like you say, your soil or other parts of yes. your garden. Um, and I, but I think it now, with this sort of benign February, that, that shade cloth or, or protection is, is probably not needed. You know, no. we're, we're not using it, and we're get, actually getting some of the healthiest and heaviest yeah. cro- cropping tomatoes we've had for a long time. Yes, I, I noticed I, I, my cucumbers did no good. But I've got a magnificent crop of the apple cucumbers coming on. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. Magnificent crop. So, oh, well, you live and learn. But yep. Mario's an interesting fellow. Yeah, I'm sure Mario knows what he's doing. He's probably <laughs> got some, some generations behind him. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. But that little bush tomato, the little KY1, they're a tough little tomato. They don't seem to get a, a lot of disease either. They're not well known. Yeah, it's look. Some of those little um, uh, d- determinate types, which are the ones that just flower, flower and then fruit, and they stop fruiting afterwards. Yes. They maintain their health early in the season because they don't keep growing, and uh, so they're right. not susceptible. They're, they bear their crop early, and they're yes. not susceptible to the diseases that you can yes. get later on yes. with the indeterminate types. Yes. Uh, is Stephen there at all? I'm here. Now, Stephen, we're we're tracking down that um, snipe. 
for you. You know, <laughs> that little Cyclomenius? Oh, yes, yes. I was talking to Will Asperner, yeah. and he said out of all the daffodils, it would be the slowest multiplier he's ever known. Oh, yeah, yeah it is. It's, it, it, it is an exceedingly slow multiplier, and that's why you never see it around, but it's the cutest little daffodil. Yeah. Well, I've got a little box of Cyclomenius to send you down. Oh, fantastic. And a little box for Pam, so I hope she's got oh, a little... Oh, wonderful. Look, I hope you've got a little bit of room, Pam. I'll find I'll, it. Pa- Pam yeah. will find room. I have to say too, Robert, uh, this is a heads up to everybody, I'm actually going to be opening the Lee and Gatha Daffodil Show Are this you? coming year. Yes. Whoa. Yeah, they've been in touch with me recently and asked me whether I was going to be in the country and whether I'd be available and, and what have you, so I'll be oh. down there on that... Thursday, whatever the date is, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, so I'll be down there opening the daffodil oh, show. So how's that? that? And I'll I'll, uh, I'll share the tea and coffee. Oh, fantastic, <laughs> Robert! Plate of sandwiches and cake. Uh, and I'll come home twice as big as I left. <laughs> and and um, but anyway, I'll be sending us down some. And I've got a beautiful uh, flower here called daffodil, uh, called Holy Sunset, Pam. Mm. Oh, really? Oh, beautiful. I'll, okay. I'll send you a couple of bulbs. Oh, well done, but, Robert. Thank you so much. Anyway, everything's going well. Uh, I'll be out uh, chasing rabbits as soon as the weather gets a bit cooler. Right. So I've had a lean uh, summer chasing rabbits, so that's uh, that's the luck of the draw with the hot weather. You can't go out. Of course it is. Anyway, yep. bye-bye. Okay, bye, later. Robert. Bye-bye. That number, if you'd like to join us this morning, do give us a call. The number is nine. 9- Four one nine zero one double five. Tim, let's go to uh, some of the veggies you've brought in this morning. They're so colourful. They're wonderful. Oh, yes. It's, well, as I was just saying to Robert, we've had quite the bumper season in our trial garden this year. Um, so tomatoes are really the thing that are, are featuring at this time of the year, especially towards the end of the summer. So I've got. I brought in. A, it's you know, being such a visual medium, it's going to be difficult to <laughs> describe describe to the listeners what I've got in front of me. But I but I've got a, a couple of varieties of tomatoes that I wanted to talk about because because they're really interesting and they're things that we're picking up um, a bit of a trend on. We've got what there's there's one in front of me. I'm going to get Stephen to help me because he's waxes lyrical. How would you describe that one, Stephen? I'd, I'd describe that as a as as a purple black. Uh, and it's a little green underneath where it doesn't get the light on it so much. But if you looked at it from a distance, uh, I would say it looked like giant deadly nightshade. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> um, so if you could just try to eat one of those. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I could bring in some deadly nightshade and we could do some taste tests. Except it's not actually deadly nightshade. But that's no, no, that's no, it is deadly story. nightshade. I have got deadly nightshade in my okay, garden, a trope of belladonna. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, in both okay. the brown-flowered and the yellow-flowered version. So. Well, so as we know, all the all the tomatoes are in the solanaceous family, which yeah. is related to the nightshade. The nightshade, and family. it really fascinates me that there's so many very poisonous things in this family, <laughs> and so many very edible well, for, things. For a long time in the, in European culture, tomatoes were were considered to be. Oh yeah, uh, oh yeah, yeah they were looked on with great suspicion. That's right. Consi- I remember something that was. Poisonous and yeah. well, dark G- uh, Gerard in his in his um, herbal suggested that it was only eaten by those from the warmer climates. You know, those sort of Spanish. And, gone and yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It's not not good for us cool climate people at all. <laughs> so the one I'm holding here that, that, that Stephen was just describing is one that's called blueberries, and, it, and they are virtually black before they ripen. Uh, so that the little truss that, that we were just looking at then is bef- is about two or three weeks before they ah, ripen. Ah, so it actually goes red later. And then it, it ripens into uh, this sort of, well, it's a pinky colour yeah. blush. It's actually known as blueberries. 
not to be confused with blueberries. Blueberries, yes. Uh, it's a blueberries tomato. This is part of the breeding that has been done by an American um, tomato breeder who's an absolute boffin and enthusiast, a fellow called Tom Wagner. Uh, and some of you may uh, be aware of some of the diggers' lines like uh, Tigerella and mm. Green Zebra. Yes. So these are varieties that are they're open pollinated varieties, so they're not hybrids. They're, they, they have heirloom blood in them, if you like. So he's... Tom's collection is thousands of varieties of heirloom tomatoes that he's collected over his lifetime. And now he's selecting from those some interesting characteristic traits. Uh, uh, traits. And one of these is this, this anthrocyanin or the, the, the blue pigment or the dark pigment that's in these tomatoes. Uh, and it's coming through in a few of his selections. It's actually originally started with the Oregon State University. Uh, in the in the US with uh, a vari- an indigo apple or an indigo variety, uh, and now it's being it's appearing in a number of different um, forms of tomatoes. So that blueberries is one to look out for, and it's one that we're that's actually a seed crop that we're growing this year. So yes. depending on how the season goes, and so far it's going well, we should be able yeah. to collect seed from that and offer that for our for our catalogue coming in July. We've had one in the last couple of years which we call red and black, which is also known as indigo apple. And this is a, a larger form. So blueberries is, what would you say, they're sort of large grape size. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's a cherry type. Yeah, yeah. cherry. So it's a bit yeah. smaller than Tommy Toe. Uh, and then we've got indigo apple, which is, I guess it's apricot size or a bit, you know, it's the mm. size of a, a, a small gross list. And again, it starts off with this deep, deep blue. It's a, it's an unnatural looking, poisonous looking. Colour. Yes, it does. So when they that would have frightened the early growers <laughs> for sure. Yes, wouldn't have been that one. I, can I just say, when I grew that, um, it actually looked fabulous in my garden because it was more purple than blue. Yes. It was in the sunlight. It yes. has this beautiful, it's, strong, that's a good point. deep purple colour. And and, um, and I was actually sorry when it all started yes, to go red because yeah. it was purple. If it retained that colour through yeah. the ripeness, it would be something spectacular. Well, maybe that's something to work for. Yeah. So <laughs> the, so the selection's still actually the, it's basically the the anthracyanins stay in it. The pigment stays in it. But the, as it ripens, the, the red comes through stronger. Mm. Mm. So you get this red and black combination. It, it becomes more of a sort of a black Russian or black yeah. cream yeah. type yes. colour. Yes. Yes. And, and I haven't got a knife here, but, but if we slice this open, this one here, with this, which is the red and black, it is pure red on the inside. So it has like a black skin, yep. and which is a blacky, purpley skin, and slices yep. through to a, to, through so a I'm, I'm a growing that one too this year. Um, uh, none of mine have started turning red yet. There's still this amazing, almost almost black the whole way around mm. now, some of them. Um, but they look stunning, really oh, they look stunning really on the plant. really ornamental on the plant. This blueberries, this, this, this plant <laughs> is absolutely covered in fruit at the moment. So it's, they're almost like these little, little black jewels that are just hanging there. Penny, your knife could be sharper. <laughs> well, maybe your tomato skin could be thinner. <laughs> I've got a really thick skin. <laughs> so Penny's just handed me her knife and I've sliced open the... the and it is. It's, it's got none of that dark colouring The dark colouring does not go into it. No. But it's not the bright red, though, but it's a really nice... It's that sort of blushing colour. Russian red kind of red. And Can I just say that was a pocket knife that I handed him? I don't actually carry a sort of a bladed knife. Just don't go and catch it. The other one in this series that I've got here, which was worth mentioning, is one that's called Blue Green. So, and this is again a Tom Wagner, and it starts off 
very much the same as the, 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 the red and the black, black or the indigo yeah. apple. Yeah, in fact, you'd almost you'd swear it was the same. At an unripe stage, you'd look at them mm. both and they look almost identical. Green yeah. underneath, yeah. But it ripens through with a yellow or yellowy, greeny pigment, so right. which is quite common in some of the heirloom tomatoes. Green grape is a good example. Yep. When Green grape is a small cherry-type tomato that when it ripens, it just goes that tinge of yellow. You have to pick it because if it goes too far, it can get overripe. Mm. But getting it at the right stage when they just go yellow is when the flavour is at its best. And this is a trial, this blue-green one that we're doing this year. So obviously with us, it's, it's partly about how wonderful they look and how they present on the vine. Of course. But the next stage, which is where we're about to do this, this coming week at, at Diggers, is to do our internal taste tests. So we will be, we'll be ranking these things. We'll be comparing mm-hmm. them against the, the yes. supermarket standard, our Tommy Toe standard, mm-hmm. and saying, okay, it has to qualify to taste mm-hmm. just as good as it looks for mm-hmm. it to make it into our mm-hmm. list. So it's exciting at this time of the year. We, um, we, very. Get, we get very excited about our tomatoes. Well, it's like your green zebras. You have to wait till they get that tinge of yellow it's before the they're ripe That's too. Right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell because if you touch them, they, they have a little softer. bit of give to yeah, them. That's yeah. how yes, you can tell. Right. Um, can I just add to that that on Organic Gardener's website, um, I've written an article about a whole array of different tomatoes and I've actually got a photo that was taken in the digger's kitchen garden um, mm-hmm. of about... I think it's about 15 different cultivars. So if you want to see not all of them, but some of the ones that Tim's just been yeah, talking about, yep. you can go to the Organic Garden. You'll get, you'll get a replication of what's on the desk yeah, in front well, of us. Yeah, well, sort of. Yeah, they're not all there. are arranged more nicely. But this is a, not a visual medium. Well, they've got a good thing, face for it. The other thing that I just wanted to add to that is on the Facebook page, we're asking people to let us know what their favourite tomatoes are so that later in the year we can do an article around people's favourite tomatoes and which grow best in which regions because one of the interesting things that's coming through on the Facebook page and the 70-odd comments we've had already is that some people in Queensland find that there are some tomatoes that do much better there because they're not attacked by fruit flies much. Mm. Okay. And in the Blue Mountains, you need ones that will cope with a shorter season, which mm. is the same as at St Earth. Yes, um, yes. So that you need ones that ripen quickly um, yeah. for the short season. Well, so. We'd love that sort of information. That's, that's, uh, well, and diggers will be paying attention. Uh, Penny and yes. I will be talking <laughs> lots about your responses. Um, I'll put a link to the diggers Facebook page onto that link yeah. as well. Um, but I was just going to say on that short season, we're actually trialling. I didn't bring one in because there was only one fruit on the vine and I, and I would have been shot by our trials oh, yes. manager if I'd <laughs> taken that. Um, that was ripe anyway. We're trialling a, um, a, a huge beefsteak that comes from a grower in Red Hill just up the road from us, okay. which has a very short season. And okay. the, often the thing about the large tomatoes is, is the, that they don't ripen in a mm. short season. Yes. You know, the normal recommendation is grow a cherry if you're in a short yeah. season. Yes. 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 Massive and it's better to grow smaller yeah. tomatoes as a rule. Yes. So we might have, for you, yeah. coming through our system, a uh-huh. beefsteak for, wow. the, for, for, the, for the shorter summers. Mm. So these are the sorts of things we're often looking yeah. for. I must say, this year I'm getting massive crops of um, pink bumblebee. Yes. Yes, yeah. they just keep it is, coming. It is hugely <laughs> prolific. And I, and I have its cousin in front of me here, which is Sunrise Bumblebee. So, okay. So, again, these are coming out of um, American breeding. Um, well, American, it's sort of like it's, it, these, the people who are responsible for this are called artisan tomatoes. Yep. Uh, and they're, they're, I guess they run a very similar program to, to Tom Wagner. Uh, but they're bringing this beautiful jewel-like stripe into these little cherry tomatoes, which have the sweetness that we've, we've 
barely seen before. Mm. These in the last couple of years have topped our taste test mm. significantly. Yes. And this one, so pink bumblebee is a is a has a pink hue with a with a yellow and red stripe, whereas this one, sunrise bumblebee, has a a stronger yellow yes, base to yes, it. Yes, yes. And when it's chopped open and you put it in the sun, it, it's almost translucent. So you, you look through it. So they're very jewel-like. Beautiful, oh, beautiful they're little things. Beautiful to look mm. at. Just yeah, they're wonderful. I'm I'm totally enjoying my crop at the moment. I must say, <laughs> long may it continue. <laughs> we must go to our next caller. We have uh, Penelope in East Malvern. Good morning. Are you there? Hello. Oh, Penelope, are you um, there? Pam, Hello. It's Pen- yes. Penelope. Hello. Being oh, Penelope. Penelope. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, can I speak to Stephen, please? You are. Ah, uh, Stephen, I've got this crab apple tree, mm. and it's the Ioensis. Yeah. And it's on my fence line, and it's in the garden bed. Now, what's happening with the brick fence is that the brick fence is getting a bit bored. It's getting a bit what? Board, like like someone's pushing the fence out. Ah, yes. Yeah. yeah. So now I don't know whether to get it pruned or whether to take the tree out. Well, if the Ioensis is to blame, I'm assuming it's a reasonably large tree by now. If yes, you think it, that it... it's a large tree and, and it's so high that I can't prune it. So mm. I was going to get somebody in. Well, to yeah, prune you it. probably need to bring somebody in to do it. But pruning the tree isn't going to stop it pushing the fence over if it's already doing that. Ah. Because. The root system is going to keep getting larger and larger. Yep. Uh, and so if it's, if it's disrupting the foundations of a brick fence, yes. then pruning the tree down isn't going to make one bit of difference. Uh-huh. So I hate to say this, but you may have, if you're going to try and preserve the fence, you may actually have to take the tree out. Yeah. So, because uh, there's talk about, because the whole fence, is, the whole fence from the beginning is all looking like crooked and everything. Yeah. Well, and, and actually this is something you probably need to analyse. What is more important, the tree or the fence? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you pushed over the brick fence and mm-hmm. replaced it with a timber fence or some other sort of fencing, mm-hmm. um, it would then not be an issue for the tree and the tree wouldn't be an issue for it. Um, and you could keep the tree. I mean, if it's a big old Ioensis and it's lovely in flower in the spring, maybe it's worth considering the tree is the important feature in the garden and not the fence. Mm. So I, I would look at it from both directions, but certainly pruning the tree isn't going to solve the problem. So you either have to get rid of the tree, and I might add, getting rid of the tree won't necessarily get rid of the problem with the fence, because as the roots rot away underneath it, it could actually go the other way, because the foundations will flop back in and the whole fence could lean the opposite direction. Yeah, because there's talk now about, with the body corporate and all that, there's talk about putting a new fence in. Well, if they're talking about putting a new fence in, I would suggest to you that you get on side of that and say, yes, we need to have a new fence, but don't replace it with yet another brick fence because they'll have to put down foundations, which will cut through roots uh, of the tree uh, and cause all sorts of issues. But if they can put up something that does less of going into the ground, Mm -hmm. uh, then you'll probably have a win-win situation. If so you, if you, yes, yeah. Stephen, as you said, if you put up a timber fence, you've only got to put stumps in, and yeah. they're not going to be yes. affected in the same way. Yeah. They're much more malleable than, yeah. a, than a brick fence. And, in fact, you could probably even work out your, um, your upright posts 
to get around the tree as yeah. much as possible mm. so, so that you're not actually having to dig. Yeah. yeah, so that you're not going down through the root of the tree. Because, I mean, you know, a, a large old tree in a garden can be a very precious thing. Yeah. And I think some people go, oh, a tree, it's a nuisance. But they don't think about how they can actually keep the tree and stop the problem from being there. And the problem, is, as I see it, is that your fence is getting wobbly. If it's a body corporate issue and the body corporate are already talking about fence replacement, which yeah. they'll probably have to do whether you take the tree out or not, because the fence is, is obviously now... Uh, well, it's unstable. Um, it's unstable, yeah. so it's been compromised. Uh, and so it's probably going to go down anyway. So I'd say, I'd talk to the body corporate and say, all right, the fence has got to go because it's unstable. Um, can I keep the tree? And we talk about what sort of fencing goes in place. And a timber fence is going to be cheaper okay, than a new brick one. The fence that they're going to replace is like the same like what we've got now. So it's brick, and then in the middle it's got those the steel thing, you know, the the bars, the steel right. panels, steel panels. So they're actually just brick uprights, are they? It's, it's brick, and then there's pillars, pillars each side, and yeah. then there's space in the middle where you have these... Um, Steel panels. Yeah. Well, look, I just talked to the body corporate. If they're wanting to replace the fence as is, point out to them that the last time they, the fence was built, it hasn't worked very well. Mm. Maybe they need to start looking at alternative ways of doing the fence to Realign where the pillars are. Yeah, maybe. realign where they're the pillars are. They're going to have to redo the pillars anyway. Yes, yeah, that's right. They've got to do the whole, because these units were built in 1968. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so now with the movement of the soil and earth and everything, it's... It's all become, it's not like on its last uh, thing, but it's looking all crooked. Yeah. And yep. the yeah. other fence where Unit 1 is, it's all twisting yeah. from underneath. So yeah, it's, it's got to be dealt underneath. with, but I don't think the tree is, is going to help either way if it's removed. And I would, I would see the amenity of the tree as being probably more important than the fence. Yeah, the tree's taken... Mm. How many years to grow? Well, if it's a built in the takes, 60s, yeah. so, you know, you're, you're looking at a, a 40 to 50-year-old tree. Yeah. Um, I think that's far more important, um, particularly if the tree is in reasonable health and looking nice and all that sort of thing. Um, oh, it's not 40 or 50 years old. The tree is not 40 or 50 years old. So it wasn't planted when the units went up? No, 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 no. Mm. I planted that tree, yeah. and, and I've had a few guys come in and give me a quote, and they said, this is what happens when you plant something in the wrong position. So. Yeah, but maybe the fence is in the wrong position. I'm always on the tree side. <laughs> uh, so, look, I would talk to your body corporate, Penelope, and... and, and discuss it with them because yeah. if you've got a really nice tree there, there's got to be ways and means that could actually, in fact, be cheaper than what they're proposing. Yeah. Um, a brick-pillared fence with metal in between, it sounds like an awfully expensive type of yeah. fence to me. Yeah. Um, and if you're happy to have something that's a little less uh, solid in, well, not solid in construction, but a little less sort of dominant in construction, um, it should cost them less. Uh, so that means all of the people who are involved in the body corporate will be charged less uh, and you get to save the tree. So that's what I would be doing and uh, I'd talk to them rationally about it and suggest to them that there's ways and means around this. Um, Why don't we look at that? Because I think that's the best way to go because pruning the tree back isn't going to make any difference. Okay, so at the end of the day, should I get the tree pruned? Not necessarily. No, No. No, but it needs pruning. But does it need pruning? Yes, it needs pruning because it's it's getting like too thick up and it's going right up into the sky. Well, that's all right. The sky's free. Sorry? The sky is free. I know, but it 
just people worry about pe- plants getting big. I mean, that's what some plants are meant to do. They get big. Um, it's, co- it's covering over the, the camellias and everything. You know, it's like well, maybe you lift the canopy of the tree. Yeah, the canopy. The canopy needs pruning. Yeah, but you could lift the canopy so that it's not damaging the camellias, so no, no, the no. whole tree head could go up into the air further. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's very difficult for me to give you advice without standing in front of your tree, obviously. Um, but I would look at the alternatives. I mean, taking the top off a tree like that could compromise its look. So it's not necessarily going to be a pretty tree anymore if you whack the top off it. So if it's going to be pruned, it needs to be done with sensitivity so that you keep the integrity of the tree. Yeah. And so if you're going to get it dealt with, make sure you get a uh, highly qualified tree surgeon to come in and do it, not a tree lopper. Um, and discuss the aesthetics. That I'm getting, they call themselves arborists, I don't know. Yeah, well, most arborists are qualified, but I'd like to see their qualifications. If, I was, if it's somebody I've never used before, I'd want to know that they're properly qualified and they understand tree care uh, and not just removal of trees. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's a big decision to, to prune a I major tree like when that. I, when I got this guy in and he gave me a course, and I wanted other trees pruned in the garden. So he, he said, look, it's better for me, it, it'll take me longer to prune the tree than for me to just hack it off. Well, know? of course it will. Uh, that's... He said, that's why I'm charging you so much money because I, there's a lot of work involved in pruning this tree and shaping this tree. Mm. You know? yeah. So. yeah, and look, that would tend to suggest to me that he's thinking this thing through. Yeah. Um, and he is, yes, obviously giving you alternatives. Uh, but you need to decide whether the tree is important to you or not. If the tree isn't important to you, we'll just get rid of it because it's not going to make any difference pruning it back with regards to the fence. So I think that's what you've got to do, Penelope. Okay. okay. All right. Okay, thank you, Stephen. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, just a reminder that uh, we are having our subscription drive today, this morning. Uh, this is uh, your way of showing support for not only the station, but also the uh, 3CR gardening show. Um, it's uh, $70 a year for waged, uh, $35 if, uh, for concession. And uh, it's a wonderful way, as I say, of supporting 3CR and the gardening show. Uh, and, of course, anyone who subscribes this morning or who renews their subscription will go into the draw for um, a book, a beautiful book called Creative Vegetable Gardening by Joy Larkham. So uh, we are running through until 9.15, uh, but if you'd like to be a part of that raffle, that uh, auction off with, that we're having, uh, you do need to call us. Uh, we'll probably uh, draw that roughly about 9 o'clock, 5 past 9. So uh, do give uh, Rosemary a call. The number is 94190155. Okay, we'll go next to uh, Carol, who's out in Bentley. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to ask about echiums. I've got an echium. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. It's about 1.5 by 1.5, and it's very leggy. Yeah. Can I cut that? I don't know. Can I cut it to the base? There's some that have got little leaves coming up. Should I cut it back to that? Or? Yeah, look, echiums don't respond to really heavy pruning well. 
Oh, right. Uh, and uh, by that I mean that they sometimes just cark it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, so you do have to be a bit careful where you prune if you're going to cut one back. Uh, having said that, they're comparatively easy to propagate from cuttings, and it's always a good idea to put some cuttings in if you're going to prune an echium hard, because you might need a replacement. Uh, if it's got shoots coming off the stem, though, yes, you can prune back to those, and it should be fine. Oh, great. Another question, if I can ask. Lemon tree. Um, I put a lemon tree. It was in a small pot, but it was quite substantial. And I put it in a super large pot. And it's at the moment, it's got little brown scaly things on that I've sprayed with pyrethrin and echo oil. (laughs) And I've tried to pull them off. You know, they're little like tan... I don't know what. I don't know if they're aphids or what they are. Sounds like scale. Sounds like yeah, scale. Scale is it? Okay, so when I have to renew the potting mixture, I bought super good potting mixture, and uh, do I just take it from the top or? Well, you shouldn't have to actually renew the potting mix. How long ago did you pot the plant? Oh, I just potted it. Mm. I just potted it, but I thought a potting mixture it becomes um, useless after a couple of years or a year or something. That's just because it will run out of fertiliser. Oh, is that so? Oh, I didn't know So that. you just feed it? Yeah, so you just oh. need to liquid feed. Especially is that also with ordinary little pots too? Yep. Yep. Yeah, because oh. any, any potting media will have, depending on, if it's an organic media, it'll have um, a pelletised manure or some organic form of fertiliser in it, uh, and that'll leach through really quickly because water's moving through the potting media quite quickly mm. you know, over, over the course of a couple of weeks when you keep watering. Uh, so organic media, um, potting media, potting mix needs to be more regularly fed, uh, whereas the, um, the commercial ones that have the slow-release prills in them will release over a slow, uh, a long period. So they'll release over you know, five to six months, maybe a year, depending on the formulation. But it will get less and less as time goes on because it keeps leaching through. So the, the secret on that is really just to make sure in a container, in a pot of some sort, that you keep a liquid feed up to the, to the plant on a regular routine through the growing season. And oh, that's what... Sorry, I was just going to say, as the as the um, media itself sort of starts to break down too, because that also happens, you will find the level lowers a bit. So it's mm. not a bad idea to yeah, add to a top up. A a top up mm. I usually use a bit of compost and a bit of um, worm worm castings um, to add to the bulk of the potting mix as yep. well as well as some of the nutrients. Oh right. And In the meantime, uh, you need to get on top of your scale. Yes. And I would use a toothbrush and soapy water for that. Oh. So oh, just that makes sense. Not the one you're using no, at the no. moment. <laughs> <laughs> the old one. Yes, the old one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Benny, That's I couldn't right. help no, it. No. <laughs> I, I, I would like to say that I actually set you up for that. Yeah, yeah, I'm good, right, fine. I yeah. didn't <laughs> Oh, well, thank you very much. So the only time I have to repot is when the plant grows out of a plot. Yeah, plot. when it gets yeah, too big yeah. for the container and it needs to go into yet a bigger container then you will need more potting mix and, yes, you pot it up. Mm. Oh, look, thank you. I've learned something valuable today. Excellent. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Tim, while we've got a chance, let's uh, finish talking about what you brought in. 
Well, before I finish moving on to the other veg, yep. I, I should mention that the, if people want to experience the wonders of tomatoes in, today, there's the, the Melbourne Tomato Festival that's happening in of Eltham course. today. Yep. Uh, so jump on the website. I think it's just called Melbourne Tomato Festival. There's a number of chefs. There's Guy Grossi. There's a number of others that are presenting. Clive's doing a talk there on heirloom mm-hmm. tomatoes this afternoon. And Keith, one of our other staff, is doing some talks on organic um, soil amelioration. And they're doing lots and lots of taste testing. It's a big Passata festival. It's linked in with the whole Italian um, uh, culinary movement. So if people are interested in tasting themselves and checking out some wonderful heirloom tomatoes and tomatoes of all descriptions, jump on the website for melbournetomatofestival.com. Uh, and head out to Eltham. I think it's on from 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock today. It's at Edendale Farm. That's right. Yes. Yes. Yep. yes, which is on the corner of Wattle Tree Road and Main Road, Eltham. You go through Eltham shops and just continue to the other side of Eltham, heading towards research, and you'll see signposts. You'll come to a big corner that's Wattle Tree Road, and you'll... You'll see it, you go in there, and there'll be lots of cars there, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think this, this is the second year. It is it. the second yeah. year. I actually went out to the first one, which was at Farm Vergano. Yep. Yes. Yep. Um, again, lots and lots of people there. Yep. Lots of tomatoes. Lots of tomatoes, yeah. <laughs> which is sort of the point. <laughs> <laughs> it is the point. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, so, moving on to... So, one other thing I brought in here, which I wanted to mention, is this tiny little uh, melon, uh, and... It's, I've, it's, it's called Rich Sweetness. They're known as pocket melons. Um, this is How again cute. coming out of our trials. Um, before they ripen, they look like a, a striped mini watermelon. And they, they do, very much like a little yes, tiny so watermelon. And this is only, what, two inches in diameter? Yep. So tiny little cute things. They ripen through to this beautiful um, orange and brown stripe. Uh, and they're known as pocket melons because back in Elizabethan times, these were... Fragrant, they are still fragrant, but people would put them in their pockets to mask their other odours. <laughs> so this is this is a this is a deodorant. A deodorant. <laughs> Does it smell now? They're, oh yes, I can. Yeah, yes, you can smell that. And as they here. ripen, they get mm. much. I'm much not sure it's strong enough to get over the odour of somebody who only washes once a year. <laughs> we'll give it another couple of days because <laughs> yeah. I had one of these in my office uh, earlier in the week and had to take it out of my office because really? it was so strong. Really? So these I only picked yesterday and they're not quite ripe yet, but when they ripen, they have this... Okay. Apart from wandering around with bulging pockets, what else can you do with them, though, Tim? They, they taste... Their taste is okay. They're yeah. not... They're not um, so they, they taste like cantaloupe. They smell like cantaloupe. Yes, they smell like cantaloupe. But they don't have the... It's a white flesh inside and quite seedy. Uh, And they're quite a novelty thing. I I don't think that there's something that you would, unless some creative chef's going to turn it into something that I'm not aware of. Probably a nice sorbet or something something like that. But it's not not quite in the the league of the Hyogen melon, which is probably our number one tasting melon. Uh, But it is seriously cute. They're very cute little (laughs) things. Make wonderful table decoration, I must say. So table decorations in your pockets, whatever (laughs) you want to do with them. They're ornaments and they're really gorgeous. I can go there and I'm not. Um, <laughs> You're eating billiards, eh? No. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, they'd be about the right size, but they're not quite round enough. Um, okay. Um, oh, gosh, we've got a couple yeah, we've of got callers. Yeah, we've got a few callers um, coming in. I have a feeling we have uh, Penelope back. Are you there? Penelope. Penelope. Hello. Penelope. Hello. 
Hello, yes, you're on. Oh, Stephen, I forgot to ask you. Uh, what they're going to do is they're going to build a double brick. This is not a double brick fence. Yeah. So now they're going to uh, think in putting a double brick fence because of all the soil and everything. It's pushing the fence out, right? Mm. So I'm thinking if they're going to put a double brick, then it's coming into my garden bed a bit more, so the tree, tree will eventually have to go, won't it? Look, it's very possible, Penelope, but I, I really still think that you need to talk to the body corporate and see if there's another way around this. You know, it sounds to me like the tree is quite large and it's probably a great shade uh, creator for you. And if they take the whole tree down, it's going to completely expose you to everything, um, which I think would be rather sad. And don't uh, forget, all the members of the body corp have a say in what sort of fence is put back there. Yeah, exactly. So I'd talk to some of the other... Um, people in the different units uh, explain the situation to them that you know if you like your tree um, that um, you know get them on side talk to people about it uh, because there's plenty of ways to build a fence I mean this sounds to me like the uh, this committee's got together and say this is what we're going to do and you know that's it uh, and I think you know no, the only thing is I forgot to mention to you yeah. that it's going to be double brick. Well, I have to say, if they build a double brick fence, and as long as it's not actually against the trunk of the tree, yeah. it'll be another 30 or 40 years before it causes any issues again, too. Yeah. As long as they don't put the foundations down through the roots of the tree. And then you really do and have then issues. And then you could have issues with the, the, the tree itself and its health. Oh, it's a nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, look, look, you these need to talk be, to people. But yes, I think you need to sort that's, of be proactive about yes. this, Penelope, and get out there and actually, you know, sort of lobby about it. Either that or you just say, all right, the tree's going, get it out and, and move on, yeah. uh, and then start again with another tree of other, some other sort, perhaps planted further back in a little bit so it's a bit further away from the fence. Um, uh, you know, so you've got to make a decision which way you want to go, and then whichever way you want to go, then you have to start making sort of arrangements so if you want to keep the tree mm -hmm. and this new fence has got to go in uh, I'd talk to the body corporate about it if they're going to put a double brick one in find out whether it's going to uh, have any uh, impact on the integrity of the tree uh, if it's not well then just let them build it and keep the tree because it'll be years before it, it would ever cause a problem again and in fact I'd be surprised if an Iowensis is going to get that much bigger than it already is uh -huh. that it's then going to cause any sort of structural problems to a new fence that goes up because it's going to have new foundations. It's, all its footings and everything are going to be new. Uh, so it'll be sitting on top of an existing root system. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think it's likely to cause any grief after that. Okay. 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 Thank you. No, that's all right, Penelope. Bye. 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 Ah, now we have um, our good friend Sue from Mount Evelyn online. Good morning, Sue. Hi, Pam. How are you? Hi, really well. The crew. I haven't been listening. I've been dropped Jack off at work and been raiding the hard rubbish collection for terracotta pots and self-watering pots. Concrete tile that's got mosaic flowers on it, so I'll have oh. to wake my husband up and get the Triton with the crane. I reckon. <laughs> Goodness <laughs> um, The reason I'm ringing is I was going over to Rose Hill Estate today, and Virginia said you haven't advertised it. Is it actually open? Um, it's Rose Creek. Rose I think, Creek. Yeah. Uh, look, I've just had a quick look on their website, and they're not advertising anything um, on today. Oh, uh, they've no. got they've got a day. Look, it, it, there may be something on, but um, their their main their big thing is part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, and it's on Sunday the thirteenth of March. 
the 13th of March. Yeah, so okay. I, I think it's unlikely that they'd have something on today and well, on the 13th of March. And if it's March. not on their website. You'd think yeah. it would be up yeah. there. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I'd go out to some more hard, hard rubbish yeah. if I were you, sir. <laughs> yes. Oh, you should see what I've got. I've got one of those big self-watering pots. It's about 18 inches tall because I'm going to do a herb kitchen garden out the back door because... In winter, it's sort of, by the time I get home, it's too late to go out into the garden. Yeah. Yep. A friend of mine started me off. She just grown me a uh, perennial basil. Oh, well done. Yeah, Fantastic. so I'm going to do that. Okay, so it, they're actually open on the 13th of March, 13th isn't? of March. Yep. yep. Yep, okay. All right. Okay, then. Thanks. Bye. 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 I do love these recyclers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we've got one more to talk about, Tim, have we? One more. This is yes. uh, cucumber. Um, yes. I think Robert was talking before about his apple his cucumbers yeah. that are doing really well. This is a similar thing. This is a variety called crystal apple, which is actually an Australian heirloom. And I found a listing in the Yates catalogue back in the 1930s for oh, crystal apple, Okay. Uh, and which is a bit of a rescue project that we've been under, undertaking here at, at Diggers. So we sort of put the feelers out because we didn't have any seed stock of it anymore. I've seen it on a couple of lists. So we're doing a trial this year where we're growing it from a couple of different suppliers to see what, what we've got. We've actually rescued this one, the true variety, as it is to, to the description, um, from uh, the States. It's come back to us and we've grown it again. Yep. So okay. we're growing it out this year. So it's, a, it's, a, what's, it's about two inches long. It's about one inch wide. It's white. Uh, a white, um, and you can eat the skin of this cucumber. Mm. Mm. So it's white all the way through. It's a crisp, um, crisp flavour, crisp, crisp texture. Uh, and is it wind forming like a normal cucumber? <laughs> this, this is a, a thing Everybody has to ask. Last yeah. time I was here, we were talking about fartichokes. Yeah, well there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Um, um, it's. I think that this one no. No. Although I haven't done the empirical trial. <laughs> But I've certainly noticed that when we eat, that it's, it's calmer on the stomach than yeah. some of the ones with the thicker skin. Oh, right, good. That's, that's, that's very important, I think. Uh, so crystal apple is something that um, we've been pursuing for a couple of years. This is where we're out there kind of figuring out whether there's much heirloom Australian um, seed lines that we can get hold of. We know there is, but where are they and what are they? Mm. So we get things sent to us from time to time. The challenge is to actually then go through and rogue them through, find the different sources and see if it relates to some story that we've got yes. that we can put some, some credence to. So Crystal Apple is one to look out for in our catalogue coming up. Okay. Uh, true Australian heirloom that um, has a great prospect. It's a little running one, um, as all the cucumbers are, but it doesn't grow too large. So it's a fairly, it's one you could grow in a small space as well. Mm-hmm. Good. How does and it crop? Heavy cropper. We've had a massive crop off it, so we should get a good seed supply. Wow, good. Mm. They're a good one for growing in pots. Yeah. This one. They, you know, just with a little support, um, yep. they'll do really well. Yeah, I, the, I love crystal apples. And because, because the, the fruit is... It's it's quite heavy, so yes. without some support, mm. they will they will pull the the plant down. So, if you grow in a pot, just make sure there is that bit of yeah, a bit of a frame, bit of a frame. They can yeah. grow they can grow um, quite happily on a, a fairly light frame, but mm. need something. Mm. Okay, wonderful. Stephen, we're finally going to get to some of your plants, and, and I must say... Yeah, I, I had a bit of a theme. In visually, a way. it's uh, Yeah, incredible. visually it's quite spectacular, uh, and it's, 
It's sort of a bees and birds morning this morning, I thought. Uh, so I brought along a couple of plants that are incredibly good plants to have in the garden for pollinators uh, and also some plants that uh, I know that the small nectar feeding birds adore. Now, the, the plant I've got in front of me here that I think is one of the best insect attracting plants I have in my garden at this time of the year is a thing called Caryopteris. Um, for some bizarre reason, it's sometimes commonly called blue spirea and it's not related to spirea and it doesn't look like a spirea and I don't know where that came from. But, but it, it is bluey. And it is blue. At least it's, it's, yes. it's got the right colour involved in the common name. Um, and it's a, it's a small soft-wooded shrub that I treat as a herbaceous perennial pretty well. So when it finishes in the autumn, it will shed its leaves or largely shed its leaves, particularly in the colder climates. And then I cut it right back down to just within a couple of inches of the ground. And then the next year when it comes up, it'll come up as a lovely round bushy plant. It flowers for ages during the late summer, early autumn. And every bee and hoverfly within Cooey is going to come rushing in to get, uh, get their dibs at this particular plant. Okay. It's sun-loving. It's, um, uh, it's sort of a Mediterranean style of plant, so it loves the heat. It needs a well-drained site. And it's much flowers on and on. Yeah, it so. goes for ages, and it's much bluer than any lavender or rosemary I know of. Yep. Um, so I think, as an edging plant for a sort of uh, an informal, temporary hedge sort of effect, because you do have to cut it back in the winter, uh, you could look for far worse plants than this. It's aromatic. Um, uh, it's fairly easy to propagate, um, and it really is a charming plant. And it comes in, well, in Australia at the moment, we've basically got two forms. We've got Caryopteris clandoniensis, which has grey-green foliage, and we've got a form called Hint of Gold, which is a, a golden-yellow-leafed version, which also has the bluish flowers, which some people find a little over the top. Other people love it. Um, I think it's quite a useful plant, because uh, I think gold and blue go so well in the garden as a combination anyway. Um and Hint of Gold has a much larger leaf than uh, Clandoniensis, and although it's sold as a Clandoniensis form, it seems to me it's different. It's got a hybrid. Yeah, it's, it's, it. got, it's got a hybrid something <laughs> in it, so I don't know that it's straight Clandoniensis. Uh, but they're both great plants, they're both great insect attractors, and they're both very showy in the garden. Great plant to put around, say, uh, the edge of a veggie garden or mm. something like that to attract the, attract the um, pollinators in. Um, I just think it's a fabulous little plant, and mm. I don't know why it's not more grown. What I love about Hint of Gold is there's, there's the yellow or gold foliage in the Australian sun yeah. is quite difficult to manage because it can be. many golden foliage plants get burnt off in yeah. our hot sun. But this, the Caryopteris Hint of Gold holds that yellow. Yeah, and doesn't burn. Irrespective of mm. any hot hot day, 40 yeah. degree northerly wind, mm. it holds that colour. And there's no enough source. green in it that it doesn't look sickly. Yeah. Some yellow foliage plants, just particularly in a strong Australian light, tend to look just like they're bleached out and they're, and they're sick. Yep. They're chlorotic. They, they need, they to need feed. more nitrogen. Yeah, yeah. they need more <laughs> nitrogen. Uh, but there's something sort of lively yeah. about the foliage of Hint of Gold. So I think it's a great plant. And I, I think, think it's well named because yeah. it, is, it is because it's a hint. It is, well, it's quite strong, the gold, but yeah. there's a green background yeah. to it that gives it that. Yeah. Depth. And I, so I think that, you know, Caryopteris is an unsung hero of the garden and I think more people should be using it. Um, uh, perhaps if you're allergic to bee stings, don't plant it along the path to the front door because uh, you will have bees everywhere. Um, but, I, you know, I think, you know, we're all considering our pollinators more these days and, and we need to be planting things that is that are going to attract them and give them some sort of food source. And as the summer goes on and into the autumn, some of, you know, there's not quite as many flowering things out. Um, so, you know, this is a great plant to have in the garden uh, I, 
for your own visual uh, interest as well as for the insects. So mm. Caryopteris. So I think it's a very worthy, worthy plant. And I bought in some abutilins. And everybody knows Chinese lanterns and they know that the birds love them. But a lot of people don't realise just how diverse the genus is. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of sort of shrubby ones, and they're breeding a whole pile of round, tubby sort of varieties now that are quite good for tub specimens or, you know, smaller borders and so forth. But some of the old variegated forms are great fun. And um, some people don't like variegated foliage, I know. And, I, look, I can accept that. I mean, if everybody liked the same thing in their garden, it would be a boring old world, would it not? Uh, some people talk about variegations as being this nasty, pernicious disease that we shouldn't be encouraging into our gardens. Uh, other people talk about its suburban vulgarness. Um, so you expect to have garden gnomes and pink flamingos nearby. Um, but I think there's nothing wrong with a little bit of vul- honest vulgarity in the garden sometimes anyway. And some of these abutilins are great fun. And I've got three different variegated ones here. One revels under the name of Abutilin megapotamicum variegatum, which I use as a climbing plant. I don't use it as a, a shrub because it's arching and it tends to flop to the ground. And it gets these gorgeous little yellow flowers with a bright red calyx. So you've got this sort of lantern that's quite like a Chinese lantern uh, and really dark stamens hanging out. So it's sort of a tricolour flower in a way. And it flowers for almost the whole year. Does it open up more than that? No, that that flower is fully open. So that's what it does. Um, And if you run it up a fence as an espalier, of course, you're lifting the whole plant up so that Mm, you can actually view the flowers well. Uh, I've also got clients that have grown it as a pillar plant, so grown it up a veranda post or something like that and just tied it into place. And it sort of arches off the veranda post and then flowers Mm. there. And because it flowers virtually all year round, if you can plant it somewhere outside the kitchen window, which we tend to spend a lot of time looking out uh, as we're washing dishes and preparing meals and things. It brings all the little honey eaters and things into the garden and you can watch them go Mm. over the plant. Um, And its variegation is this sort of yellow mottling all through the leaves. So it's this sort of, it's a hectic variegation, I have to say. But it's all sort of cheery. So mm. I like it. You can buy this particular one in its normal green so I was form. Going to say, can I have a green? Form? Yeah, there is a green <laughs> form out there. You can get it, and I have actually recently planted a green one in the garden at the nursery so that I can propagate from both. The Variegated one will occasionally throw an odd green branch, so you need to be aware of that. A lot of variegations aren't stable, and people tend to let the green bits grow, and, of course, they're often more vigorous, so they can take over your variegated plants. So if you do like your variegated plants, make sure you remove any green. And I don't mind small shrubs that do that because you can nip and tuck and do that. I hate it when it's a 40-foot tree that does it, though. I don't want to be clambering up a tree to get the green bit out of the top. You're going to have to really love your variegation. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So (laughs) if it's not... 100% 100% stable, I don't think I'd plant a large variegated tree. Fair enough. Uh, and also, it's a fairly dominant sort of thing to plant anyway. Uh, yes. Uh, but smaller plants in the garden can be quite nice. The other thing I like about the abutilins with variegated foliage is, although abutilins will grow perfectly happily in full sun, they'll also grow quite well in semi-shade. And some of these variegated ones light up a shady yeah. corner superbly. I think that's where they come into their own. And especially the spotty ones, because it tends to make it look like sunlight coming in from somewhere. Yes. Um, so, Megapotamicum variegatum. If you're looking for a shrubby one, this is a very, very old cultivar, uh, Abutilin pictum thomsonii, uh, and it has the classical sort of apricotty orange flowers that you see on the wild Abutilins. And again, because of the variegation in the foliage, the flowers aren't quite so obvious, but the birds seem to be able to find them anyway. And this one also has yellow spotted foliage. It's not 100% stable, so you've got to be careful that you keep the green out, and if you're propagating it from cuttings, don't propagate from the green bits. Um, and it will grow to a shrub 
up around about the two metre mark, maybe a little more. Um, and like a lot of those larger shrubby abutilins, it does pay to nip them back regularly to keep them bushy and compact. Um, but yeah, very hectic, but rather fun. And finally, another very, very old cultivar of abutilin that was often used in British gardens in tropical bedding and things uh, is abutilin uh, souvenir de Bon. And again, it's an apricotty orange flowered one. Again, the flowers are sort of secondary in importance. And this one has white variegation, and a lot of the leaves are more creamy white than they are green. So it's very bold. Um, and in the shade, this thing just lights up the shade. It's not particularly big growing. It'll get up to about a metre, maybe a metre and a half, grow a little wider than it is tall. Uh, again, it's not stable, so you've got to whip out any green bits whenever you find them. But this creamy white variegation is remarkable. Um, and they're hardy, they're drought tolerant, they're sun tolerant, they're shade tolerant, they're good tub specimens, you can espalier them, you can, you can standardise them, you can do almost anything you want with an abutilin, and the honey eaters will love you. Or you can do nothing at all and they just keep growing. Yeah. And they do that as well. Yeah. And I believe, having read Organic Gardener, segue the, the, time here, there's an article about edible flowers and I've never thought about eating the flowers of a butylin. I was stunned when I was doing some research to find some more edible flowers um, because we've written, I've written about most of them. Yeah, that's right. Flowers, they've all been done before. Um, to find that a butylin flowers are edible as well. And they actually, I have a big old butylin in the back of the garden and I'm now using the flowers in salads and... Um, you don't use the central... So you don't use the stamens stamen. or the calyx it's behind? just the petals. Just the so petals. you just pull the okay. petals and they have that lovely crunchiness to them. Oh, fantastic. And they're beautiful. So, so there you I've go, got, I've learned something this morning. I've got a big old morning. white no, one. No, no, no. Yeah. They're, Probably they're really boule de neige, if it's a white one. Yes. It's the most commonly grown okay. white abutilin yeah. out well, there, Well, the photo's in the magazine, yeah. so you can and, tell and it's it's Well, it looks like boule de neige from here. I would have said that was boule de neige, a lovely old French hybrid. And, I mean, abutilins would seriously popular back in the 30s and 40s. Mm. They seemed to disappear a lot, particularly when the Australian native plant push came along. You know, it wasn't native, so we can't plant it. Um, but I think they're, they're certainly coming back to their own. I mean, I've seen uh, in nurseries, which I don't approve of, but the standard ones that were started as three plants that have been woven together as mm. a as a mm. sort of a, a plait, and then you've got three different coloured flowers in the top. I okay. find that a little over the top. Uh, but they're charging large amounts of money for them and seem to be selling them. Um, but they are coming back into their own, and rightly so. I think the abutilins are lovely plants, and they're basically all South American, if anybody wants to know where they actually come from. So okay. even though they call them Chinese lanterns, yes. the most majority yes. of them come from South America. To the name, to the yeah, flower yeah. shape rather than yes. the origin. Yes, yeah. yes. So they're certainly not, um, they're not, not Chinese. Chinese. Yeah. No. So uh, in fact, I think they call this one the Brazilian lantern flower uh, for some. The Brazilian Chinese lantern. Yeah, the Brazilian <laughs> Chinese lantern. Yes. Um, so I think the butylins are great plants, and and they are so easy and. You know, for those who haven't got a lot of time to spend in their garden, a little nipping and tucking is probably all you have to do to them, and they'll just keep performing. Mm. So, you and know, you flower can, and flower and flower. Oh, yeah. On on. yeah. So I think they're great plants. So, mm. yes, and I do quite like variegation, and I figure if I'm going to have variegation in the garden, I don't want some wussy, sort of vaguely variegated thing. I want something that stands out and says, I'm here. I really like that cream one. The cream one is yeah. beautiful. Um, Souvenir de Bon is lovely. Because it looks... It doesn't look. It doesn't simple. look chlorotic. Yeah, it's, no, it's, exactly. It's, it's really, it's, it's really white. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the green is a nice, strong green. So yeah. there's a good contrast between the yeah. colours. Uh, yes, I have to say, Thomsonii could be seen as diseased mm. uh, in mm. some people's eyes. But you know, when you know it's not, 
Um, you can sort of revel in it. Uh, yes. And so, yeah, I've started growing a few of these again because you just don't see them around the nurseries mm, anywhere. Mm. So that's it's great. always nice to be re-releasing something from old, yeah. uh, as Diggers yeah. does all the time. So yeah. I'm doing it with a few of the ornamentals. Excellent. Okay, as I mentioned, we are running through... Oh, we've only got about five minutes if you want to jump online quickly. Uh, but we will go to Jill, who's in Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Morning, Pam, Stephen and Tim. Morning. I, I want to prune my honey locust. It's looking absolutely disgusting. Um, I won't do it before thirty temperature of 31 and 35, but is it the right time to prune it now? And the right time to prune a lot of things is when you've got the time to prune them. Uh, you probably won't do any harm. Um, and in fact, summer pruning can actually be quite a good idea on some plants because if you do a heavy winter prune, it often uh, sends them into a massive growth the following season, whereas summer pruning can sometimes hold things back a little bit. Uh, so it could be well worthwhile having a crack at it now. It was absolutely brilliant, you know, during the winter, but mm. now it's looking, oh, really scraggy. Mm. Yeah, well, look, I'd get over with the secateurs and give it a prune back. I don't think you'll do it any harm. Oh, okay, then. But, yes, do avoid the sort of 35 to 40 degree days. Yeah, I'll wait till those days are over. Yeah, because you do then end up exposing foliage that wasn't exposed yeah. to the sun suddenly to the sun. Yeah, so new foliage becomes frazzle. Yes, it does. So, yes, you do need to avoid that if you can when you summer prune. I got mixed up. I also asked you about the Nandina that's really leggy. Mm. And now what's happened is, the Nandina, because I've been watering it so well, the Nandina has sprouted sort of halfway down, so I'm going to lop off the top. Yeah, uh, well, Nandina is one of those things you could lop it off a ground level and it comes back. I mean, they're tough. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mind the verticality of the normal old-fashioned form, so I don't mind it being a little bit trunky oh. underneath because I quite well, like that sort of, sort of shade, verticality. It shades things, a couple of things that are underneath it, you know, yeah. like a pinched them and doesn't get the full force of the north. Yeah, well, well, you won't do it any harm by chopping it back. Okay, thanks, Stephen. That's a pleasure. Bye. Can I just say the Herb Society's um, website? Sure. It's uh, Herb Society Vic, all one word, dot org, dot au. Excellent. And so, and also we've got a Facebook page now, which is the Herb Society of Victoria, and somehow it's got Richmond on the end of it rather than Burnley, <laughs> and um, there's a whole lot of photos of plants on that. Okay. Thanks, Pam. Good. Bye. Jill does such a good job with the Herb Society Mm. website and it's a, you know, it's a a lot of work. Yes. 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 All power to those who are prepared to put that sort of effort in, particularly for volunteer organisations. I think it's fabulous. Yes, absolutely. It's such a repository of of information, those sorts Mm. of clubs and societies, Mm. particularly specialist ones. And it's knowledgeable information, you know, pretty much. They do know what they're talking about, so it's a pretty reliable Yeah, because when you just Google things... (laughs) <laughs> I, I myself have found some fairly dubious things said mm. uh, by people who think they know what they're talking about. So I always tell people to take anything they Google with a yeah. pinch of salt because, yeah. it, you know, uh, and often there's not enough information there. I mean, they might say that something grows to 
50 feet tall, but they won't actually tell you how long it took. Yeah. So or where if, they are. Or, or where they are. Yeah, or, you yeah. know, and how much like, Yeah, I regularly get people making inquiries for plants on my website and uh, I go to all the trouble to get back to them, tell them how much they are, how big they are and all that sort of stuff, only to find out they're from California <laughs> in the following email. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ship to California? I get that quite regularly for some reason or another. And then you have to sit down and email back again and say, no, I'm terribly sorry, I don't. Mm-hmm. It would be lovely if people actually told, told you where you they're where from. They yeah. Yeah. yeah, it would help yeah. a lot. Absolutely. Now, at the start of the program, I mentioned that we were having the subscriber drive, uh, that one lucky listener was going to be drawn to uh, get a copy of Creative Vegetable Gardening by Joy Larkham. Well, big thank you to all those people who have actually phoned and uh, taken out a subscription or renewed it. Tim, I'm passing Uh-oh. across to you. Okay, right. I'm drop Got it. them all? Okay, I've got one. You've got one? Yeah. Okay. I'll open it up. Open Drum it up. Drum roll, please. Yes. <laughs> George. George. George is the winner. George, uh, out in Preston there. Well done, George. But a big thank you to all those other listeners who uh, subscribe because that is a wonderful way of supporting 3CR and the gardening show. George, I'll be sending that book out to you during the week. So look out for that one. A big thank you to everyone. Okay, well done, Tim. <laughs> Your yeah. big moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, life is complete now. Oh, I, think, I think his beautiful assistant should be thanked for the drum roll too, of course, but you know, what can I say? Is that what it is? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, well, uh, a, quick, a quick mention of the date, Stephen, of the opera. Oh, yes, yes. Opera at Tugurium, 10th of April. Uh, two for two thirty. Please go into Gertrude Opera website uh, to book. Uh, you can book online there, and uh, we'd love to see people come up for that. I mean, music and gardens go together so nicely, um, as does wine, food, and everything else involved. So, uh, I'm lawn. Yes, and lawn. Yes, yes, and you'll all be able to come and see how my efforts of getting my normally at this time of the year, brown lawn up to being a green one. Um, so, uh, yes, do come along for the opera in the garden at Tugurium. Excellent, be excellent. Tim, very quickly, a digger's going to have a stand at Mifkus this yes, year? Yes, we have a small stand. You've got to do not, the pumpkins. Not, not, not quite the big extravagance. one. You can't do that every year. No, no, I think <laughs> no, you no. might not. But there's lots going on at diggers. Check out the website. We've got workshops. We've got a few festivals at Earth. Uh, Heronswood coming up in the next month or so. so. You've been very busy with workshops, actually. Yeah, yes. So there's, there's always a workshop program, whether it be at Cloud Hill, St Earth or Heronswood yep. so people want to get involved jump on the website and check out the workshop tab absolutely wonderful okay uh, big thank you to all the team this morning particularly who, to Rosemary who's been doing heaps of work on the phone we of course will be back uh, at 7.30 next Sunday until then bye for now